Welcome to the Brand Builders Lab podcast. I'm your host, Suze Chadwick, certified business and mindset coach, author, and speaker. Each week, we'll be talking about simple but powerful business and mindset strategies that will help you build a lean, clean, and profitable business so you can learn to get out of your own way and pay yourself more. Forget average, it's time to level up. Hey, lovely. How are you? So great to have you back on the podcast. I hope that you're doing well. Yeah. How's your month going? How's your week going? How's life going? (laughs) It's always nice to be asked those questions, isn't it? But listen, today I have got a treat for you. I enjoyed this episode so much. And if you follow me on Instagram on stories at Suze Chadwick, you may know that I am talking a whole lot more about this, which is really focusing in on your sales, your sales strategy, your sales process. You know, we work so hard to get leads in our business. And then I feel like a lot of times, and this is me included, sometimes we're lazy marketers. We're lazy marketers. We're lazy sellers. People come to us, they sign up for our things, and then we either never email them, we never connect with them. And then we wonder why we don't have like the number of clients that we want in our business. And so I am on a mission to help more of my clients and help you to be able to convert those leads. And so that's why I am interviewing some amazing people right now, all about not only how you grow your audience, but how you actually take that audience, that community, that potential lead through to a sale in your business so that you can have the impact and the influence as well as the income that you want. And so I think it's really important for us to talk about this because I think that if you've been in the online space for the last couple of years, and I know that some people really struggled, but there were other people where if you were in the like online course or coaching kind of industry, it was booming. It was like just money coming through the door. So I think that now the market has changed and I think that we have to have better systems in place. And so that is something that I'm really focusing on as well. So today I am speaking to Yolanthi Gabri, who is the director of Melbourne-based social media agency, Ruby Assembly. She's a senior communication strategist and business mentor, and Yolanthi views female business ownership as essentially empowering feminist act, which I love. And she is a prolific business writer and the podcast host of Sell More, Mean More. Her great loves include Eurovision, Oracle Cards, Go working spaces and fabulous clothing. She lives in Melbourne's north with her husband, Yuli, her daughter, Egal, and Wagner, their German shepherd, and two villainous cats, Super Hans and Baby Belly. She is a very happy lady. So today we're talking all about strategic and intentional selling. And she is really going to be sharing, we're getting into the nitty gritty of selling and all of the amazingly creative ways that Yolanthi magnetizes her clients into her vortex. You'll learn all about the vortex. So she can experience super long client relationships and create deep connections to serve her dream clients more. So I love some of the ideas that she shares in this podcast. I think you're going to get a lot of out, a lot out of it. I also really want to challenge you to think about what your sales process is. And if you're like, Suze, I don't have a sales process, then like, 
hit me up. Like, let's talk more about this as well. I'm going to be talking more about all of this in BBA, the Bold Business Academy as well, doing some additional trainings, doing some additional coaching on selling, conversion, growth, all the rest of it. That is what we want to do. You know, at the end of the day, if you want to stay in business for a long time, you've really got to nail these elements of it. You've got to nail your sales strategy and hopefully create something that you really love and that you know, captivates your clients and converts them. So that's what we're talking about today. I know you're going to love this episode. I did. And if you loved it, then I'd love you to share it as well. Make sure you tag Lanthe at Ruby Assembly. But hey, let's dive into this week's episode. Alanthe, welcome to the Brand Builders Lab podcast. Suze, I am chuffed when I woke up this morning. I was like, I'm going on the Brand Builders podcast and I am just so grateful and delighted to be speaking with you. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Love it. We're bringing the energy right from the start. It's so, so good. BPE, if I can say that, big energy. (laughs) Oh, so good. So I have given my listeners a little bit of an intro to you, but I always love to dive into the story about you and how you got here. Uh, And for my listeners who don't know you, just give me a little bit of a snippet. Like how do you introduce yourself or how do you talk about yourself? So my elevator pitch is I am the director of Ruby Assembly. We're a social media agency that focuses on comms for professional services. Now, Suze, it took me many, many years to refine that elevator speech because when I first began my agency, you know, I did a variety of things and indeed we still do, but refining an elevator speech is really focusing on what it is that I can sell the most of and speaking to people about that thing first. So yes, I own a social media agency, um, but I also own co-working spaces in Melbourne's North. I'm the author of a um, a extremely well-selling book called 100 Days of Brave. Um, I have a podcast. Uh, I do a lot of things and I'm a happy lady. I love it. It's so good. But I also think that when you when you really love what you do and you've got a lot to say, which women like us, we've got a lot to say. We've Lots always got say. a lot to say. That's why we write the books. We've got the podcast. We work with clients. And so I love that as well. Also having that elevator pitch really aligns with what we're talking about today and what we're going to be talking about, which is strategic and intentional sales. And really learning to, you know, back yourself and love what you're selling. And I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, that energy definitely comes across. So I'm excited to dive in. So how did you get here? How did Ruby Assembly happen? What's been your journey? So I've had a pretty uh, unusual journey to being a, a serial entrepreneur, I suppose. So I am a real SWAT and as a uh, private schoolgirl, I was like Jemay. I did all the things. I did the musicals. I did the debating. I did all the things, right? And um, I got a really good score at the end of year 12. And because I was intelligent, everyone expected me to go and do law because I, I was able to do law with my score. But then when I got to Melbourne Uni, I realized I, I didn't really want to do that. What I wanted to do was just focus on arts. I come from a family of artists and educators and musicians. So arts is definitely the kind of the foundational core and drive of my being. Um, and so I did my arts degree much to my parents' chagrin, I suppose. They wanted me to be able to get that um, that law degree. <laughs> uh, and then I finished my degree by going to Dublin and studying nothing but Chaucer for about a year. And that was an incredible experience. I got to really um, dive deep into a more formal and traditional mode of tertiary education. Uh, And then after that, I stayed 
working in Scotland in Edinburgh, that magical fairy tale castle at the city, for another year and a half. And I managed a um a men's store that some of your audience might know. It's called Penhaligans, and it focuses just on really high-level shaving goods for old dudes. Old white dudes. That is a niche. That's a niche. It's super niche. It's one of those products that is um has a seal of approval of uh, the the previous Her Majesty Elizabeth. And it was uh I was must have just been wearing the right suit on the right day, and I've always looked quite formal, so they trusted me with the store. So that cured me of ever wanting to work in retail, but it elevated me (laughs) into a very adult role fast because Mm -hmm. I was managing people who were much older than me. They sent me down to London quite often for training. It was just a it was a good experience. Then I came back to Melbourne and here's where the real weirdness of the story begins. So came back to Melbourne. I was like, I don't want to go back to university. I sure as hell don't want to work in retail, even if it's management and retail. What am I going to do? And I thought, well, Yolanthi, if you're going to sell anything, make it the biggest goddamn thing you can sell. And so I decided that I was going to become a real estate agent and eventually an auctioneer. I did that at 21. And coming from a real strong arts background, I'm a pinko lefty. I am left of the political scale. And when people think about estate agents, not only are they reviled and hated, but they're, you know, they're at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. And so nobody in my social group thought that this was a particularly good idea. But I really followed my intuition towards this thing that I didn't really understand entirely why I wanted to do it. But by golly, it served me well. It was the ultimate training ground for then going on to own multiple businesses. Because if there's a business that's at the coalface of negotiation, of talking about money, of difficult conversations Mm. and of prospecting, that is real estate. So I did that for six years. I was really good at it. I got really tired. <laughs> I was yeah, like, I, I don't want to work this hard forever. I was only 26, 27 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided that I would use my capacity to build relationships with ease and to uh, prospect um, by selling that service to other people. So at the very end of my real estate career, which was about 2009, I began using Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn in their most basic iterations they were not monetized at that stage. Mm. But I noticed that it made prospective clients feel much closer to me and as if they they knew me and could thus trust me because I used these mediums. And I thought, oh, well, I can sell that to other people who are in real estate. So initially I began selling traditional copywriting and social media content and blog content to the real estate category. And um, it just kind of grew from there. Yeah. So that's how I end up 14 years later, now having a much more mature social media agency. I have a number of employees, plus, as I mentioned, co-working spaces and other ancillary awesome stuff. Amazing. I love it. I love like just the evolution of it. Obviously, when you came back to Melbourne, like did the opportunity just present itself? Like where did the idea about the real estate agent come from? Because I feel like that's a very different thing to land into. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm somebody who has mostly with success, followed the white rabbit. Mm -hmm. So when something appears in front of me, maybe a couple of times, two, three times, and I'm intrigued by it or it seems like the direction I should go, I follow the rabbit. And my parents had just bought a property off um, an agent that they thought was an unusual man in some ways because he had lots of like literature on the shelves of his agency. And that's really unusual for real estate agents. Um, and Rum was like, well, maybe you could, you know, maybe you could speak to him and find out more. Mm-hmm. Um, also, when I came back to Melbourne, I was thinking about working in real estate. I um, went for my first interview in real estate out in Preston, which is actually where Good Axe, our co-working space is based. And I went in and I had my 
beautiful little black woolen suit on. I had my faux but very impressive faux Louis Vuitton bag with me. <laughs> um, I, you know, I had my hair blow waves. I looked the goods, yeah. very bougie. The owner of the agency said that I would be better off looking in the inner city because they would be a better target market for the kind of person I was, which uh, whilst kind of on one level offensive, he was, he was quite right. Um, so I went and worked at an agency in East Melbourne. Um, and so I just followed the white rabbit a little yeah. bit like um, how uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Suze for my own podcast. Suze has been, had been suggested to me directly by two people as a great podcast guest for Sell Less Mean More. And so if something's presented a couple of times and there's no reason not to pursue it, I recommend you pursue it. I love that. Yeah, I agree. I just think that, you know, I think that things come up at the right time when we need it as well, just to kind of assess, like, is that what I want? Is that an opportunity I should look at? And I think that you're so right. I think that things do come up and we've just got to be aware of it as well. I think just kind of being open to those opportunities can really present like new opportunities as well. Mm. So I love that. Um, You know, when somebody uh, suggests something to you that doesn't seem like quite the right fit or perhaps somebody wants to have a cup of coffee with you and it feels a little left field, they can be really interesting conversations because you're never quite sure where they'll lead you. And I've had numerous, numerous great business developments, relationships um, come from the seed of a pretty weird and random coffee. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) That's so good. Awesome. (laughs) And so we're talking today about being really strategic and intentional when it comes to sales. Obviously, this is something that every business needs. It's the lifeblood of a business to make sure you've got clients coming in. And I know that you've come from a very strong sales background. So I really wanted to get your thoughts on talking about the strategy of it and some of the actions that you think we need to take and the tactics around it, but also the mindset and us being brave enough to sell what we have. Because this is one of the biggest things that my clients always say, I'm in my own way. Like I'm the biggest barrier to my own success sometimes. And so I know that this is an issue that so many people have. So I'd love to talk about it. So let's start with how do we think about sales in a more strategic way? What do you see and what do we need to know? Sales for many entrepreneurs would be entrepreneurs, women in startup, and I want to address women more than men, Mm. feels like a really dirty word. And when you elevate the idea of selling to prospecting, it's even more, ooh, I don't want to touch that because we associate it with uh, cold calling without purpose, with unwelcome knocks on the door, with MLMs, with stuff that we're being handed at supermarkets that we actually don't want. But Every business in all ages has needed a kind of marketing, whether that was, you know, um, uh, Da Vinci in the Renaissance period who who needed to market his fine uh, artisanal skills to bankers or uh, whether it is um, you, the listener, who might have a great accounting practice and who wants to serve people who own, I don't know, veterinary clinics, like mm-hmm. All businesses need marketing. Um, And I think that it's so easy to get caught up in the romance of doing your branding and writing your copy and not pushing go on a project because you might be a perfectionist. When people say to me they're perfectionists, it's like a really big alarm bell to me. One may be a perfectionist and understand it as something that they need to work with in the same way as I could say I have I'm a, you know, I can be an anxious person. That's something I'm aware of. It's not something that I use as an excuse not to do shit in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, 
in my practice, done is generally always better than perfect. So launching the stuff is important. But more than just having the product is actually understanding a couple of things. The first is who my prospect audience is. We can feel like we're just swimming in a giant lagoon of potential um, customers when we, A, don't have an elevator speech that works, so we can't define what it is that we do well, and, B, we don't know who is the customer who is most likely to buy the most of my stock, whether your stock is a product or whether your stock is a service. So doing the work that I guess I talk about in my book, 100 Days of Brave, that is literally a roadmap to you being able to identify the steps and build the concrete slabs to get you to the point where you can prospect with success. But you need to understand the product. You really need to understand the client so you can design techniques of prospecting around them. So for example, um, when I prospect, in my book, I go in great detail through this prospecting uh, system. It works really well for me. I find that fine attention to detail always pays rewards. I don't want to have the biggest marketing list in the world. I want to have one that really works for me and it's packed with prospects that will respect what I do. And even if they don't use them, use me themselves, they might remember me and refer me to people who are a better match with me. Um, so slow and steady wins the race in my case. So when I'm looking for a client, for example, um, I love working with the legal category. I love working with allied health professionals. I love working with accountants, for example. I'll look up accountants in a certain area and I'll see on the internet, I'll, you know, I'll see who the decision maker is. Once I've identified who that person is, I need to strategize, how am I going to reach out to them? Now me, I'm relentless. I'm intense. I'm a hunter. I love the taste of blood, <laughs> right? I love it. If you gave me nothing but a list and like internet research, the stalker in me would just be like, I'm going to sit here all day. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So um, everybody will have their own tolerance for what that cold outreach looks like. Now you can warm up your outreach by building e-resources, which is I'm sure something that you probably speak about with a lot of your clients, building very high quality documents. When you make those quality, quality documents niche for whichever client you want, your likelihood of success with that call. If you say you don't want to call them, you just want to email them. If you've got a document that relates specifically to the concerns and pain points of their business, they're more likely to remember you. Something else I do is I have stacks of postcards printed up with my face on them. I send them after I prospect. So my prospect involves calling, emailing, postcards, newsletters. It's a whole system. And by the end of that two-week process, that prospect will know who I am, and then they just enter the vortex of Ruby Assembly or Goodax or whatever it might be, um, and then they're contacted on a monthly basis because of newslettering or remarketing or whatever it might be. Um, but I guess the point that I, I want to drive home to our audience is that you need to set aside time for prospecting. It needs to be set aside as really important blocks of time. I'd, I'd suggest two to three hours at a time. Um, and, you know, you'll build up a tolerance to uh, that feeling of, fear when you're doing something new, but you can't go over the fear. You can't go under it. You have to go through it. Yeah. If you do not do it, your business will probably fail. Yeah. So interesting. And when I, and when you were talking about like really knowing your audience as well, so obviously you're like, okay, well, we want to work with people in allied health, accounting, legal, etc. When you are doing your research, is there anything in particular that you're looking for as 
as far as the type of client, as in like them personally, like who you want to work with, what are you looking for? Well, there's there's two uh, there's two versions of that looking for. And the first one is the more intentional where I'm going perhaps through a list of accountants that I have um, collated. I'm just through trawling the internet myself and looking at accountants and different postcodes. I'll look at the website. If the website is too Windows 95 and it's too cooked, they're probably not going to be a client for me because they haven't invested in digital for a very long time and they probably don't respect the medium. If I have a look at the social media suite of a firm that I can see has a good website and they're they're producing content every week, they're probably being taken care of. Mm-hmm. But if I find the site of somebody who has like, maybe it's mediocre, it might be okay, but they look like they have the bones of a good business and like they're current. And I can see they might've tried to do social media, but ultimately they haven't persisted. That's an ideal prospect for me. So I know what the sign of, of somebody is who could be a good fit. And then there's the incidental prospecting. So um, when I'm just going through Instagram, if I see a business, regardless of really the category that I think is uh, perhaps interesting, connects with me emotionally, but is doing a really poor or perhaps a potentially dangerous job of their social media, I will take a screenshot of that. And then I've got a list on my to-dos, which says, go through your Facebook snaps. (laughs) And I just, I literally just go through the list of the snaps and I see which of those clients look like they could be Uh, a good connection with me. So everybody will have a different metric of what a good client looks like. And I must say that in terms of services, it is probably easier to niche down into into that. Um, uh, But with products, I mean, great success in products tends to be by designing media for a very specific vertical or verticals. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so, and I feel like what you just said, like that's just such a great like overview for somebody to remember. Like if you think about the problem that your client has, like you said, there might be somebody who obviously is archaic and never going to invest. You've got somebody who obviously looks like it's working really well. So probably they've got help. And you know that right in the middle there, like the Goldilocks effect, you're like right in the middle, just right, perfect for you because you know that you can help them. I want to talk about the mindset around it because I think a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with the approach. And I'd love to know when you're in an approach, what's the mindset that you've got around that relationship build? I'd say that when I contact somebody from scratch, I genuinely feel that they are lucky to have heard from me that day. And I feel like that because I am significantly expert, not only in my category, but in their category and the way it should work for them. I really understand it. Um, I have invested significantly in my digital ghost, my avatar. So when you look up Yolanthe Gabri on the internet, you will see page after page of awesome gorgeousness. You would be a fool to think that I was anything but legitimate. So I built this fortification around me, but of course, Yolanthe didn't always have this fortification. Yolanthe probably was always a bit of a narcissist who felt like she could do a good job for people, which is true, which is why I was able to build Ruby Assembly so quickly from, um, you know, when I began. But there is an element of learning how to cope with somebody saying no. Somebody saying no to one's offering isn't a personal rejection. Yeah. It's just that that offering isn't for them. It doesn't mean it's personal. And it and often no in the moment doesn't mean no forever. Yeah. 
and that's when they go on the mailing list. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean no forever. Mm. Um, and I think that the only way you can build up those calluses is through repeated outreach uh, because very few people do it well. Mm. And I find that when people receive the postcards in particular after they might have entered the vortex of Ruby Assembly, they're often delighted and they'll send me a little thank you note. You know, I send, um, I use a program called Bonjoro as well, mm. which is a great program. I send um, video and voice messages to prospects too. And that can be really effective because they know I'm real. They know I'm not a bot. They know I'm not ChatGPT. You know, I'm a real person and I've made the effort. Um, so the only way to reduce your feeling of pain and anxiety around prospecting is to try and work out a way for you to enter it. And it could be with emailing, but don't think that one step is enough. It's like when people begin perhaps wanting to work with a social media agency like mine, and they want to believe that there's an exact ROI. I'm going to spend three months with Yulanthi and Ruby Assembly. I'm going to expect this many clients. That is not how hypnosis marketing works, how influence marketing works. Influence marketing is effective because it happens over such a long period of time. It's not an instant turnaround kind of behaviour. It's something you have to, to do every day. You have to apply your makeup every day or your moisturiser. It's the same with prospecting. I know that if I prospect today on the 13th of June, in three months, most likely something from my three-hour period of prospecting today will have come to fruition. I just I just know that because I've... Because of my time in real estate, I suppose, because all prospecting is a, a um, experiment in human behaviour. Um, but I know that if I don't do that prospecting today and I expect September to be a good month, then I'm also a bit of a fool. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think that, you know, when you were just saying that when you connect with them, your thought is how lucky are they that, like, I've made this offer to them today. And I know that when we were chatting just before we started the podcast, like that is one of the things that I think a lot of people struggle with is the belief in their own product or service, the belief that they have the answer or the solution for their ideal client where they can really help. And so I think that people like their products and services. I think that they think their products and services are good, but I'm not sure that a lot of people have the confidence to be like, this is amazing, you need this, I can help you. And so where do you think that kind of bridge is to, I think I like what I've got is good, mm. to actually having the kahunas to kind of go out there and be like, hey, here's my thing, do you want it? Yeah. Look, I think that a portion of that um, conundrum lies in maturation as a business owner. You know, as you forge forward through winning clients, Winning clients that are inappropriate, um, underquoting, overquoting, whatever it might be, you kind of begin to understand the lie of the land around what you can do, what you do well, the kind of people who are attracted to you and work well with you, and the kind of people who you shouldn't really work with, regardless of if they're attracted to you or not. Yeah. Um, so part of part of that um, that uh, feeling that your service is valuable comes from doing. Part of it also comes from investment. We tend to value what we invest in more. So I find that when a business doesn't invest what resources it has 
into displaying how legitimate their service is, it's a lot harder for the business owner to feel legitimate themselves. And it's a lot harder for clients to gauge how much they should pay for someone as well. So if, for example, you're still using, you're a builder, right? And you're still using, um, I don't know, Coburg's best concreter at gmail.com. That's not a great vote of confidence in your in your business. The signs of that are that it might be an amateur business. Of course, it might not be an amateur business, but you want to portray every sign of investment in your business that you have the wherewithal to produce at that time. Um, I find that photography tends to actually make people start to feel differently about themselves because they're seeing themselves through someone else's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so as an early stage in all of our um, client work, we always get clients to work with a lifestyle photography um, team so that they can begin to see what other people see of them at their best. Um, So it's a kind of, um, it's a, when people don't feel really good about their, their service or they feel like, um, oh, there's someone out there who probably knows more than me. So why shouldn't they use them? They, you know, why should I charge as much as somebody who's been doing this for 10 years? Um, I think that, I think that, I mean, on one hand, there's like, there could be issues around self-esteem there. But on the other hand, it's like this, it's this fear that other people have some magic that you don't. Mm. But look, that's that's not the case. When we're pitching business to new clients or services or um, e-commerce products to new clients, we have our solution to a problem. It might not work for everybody, but if you're a, a sensible person who does do what you say you can do, and a client comes to you, uh, you'll offer your approach to this, you'll offer your solution to their conundrum. There's not one right answer, you know, and I think people feel like, oh, my God, they're going to work out that I'm not like, that I don't have the right answer. Um, There is no right answer. There's your approach to Mm. the conundrum, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so we've kind of talked about the prospecting. We've talked about, I love the fact that you're like, don't just make the call, like find the right person, make the call, like send the postcard. Like I feel like sometimes we're a bit kind of wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. We're kind of like we find somebody, we connect with them, and we think that that's enough. Mm. And I think that that relationship builds too. So once they get the postcard and the emails and that, is there anything else that you do once they're kind of in your vortex and and you've started to, I guess, engage with them on the regular basis? Where do you take it to from there to signed clients? Yeah. So um, after they've, after I've kind of gone through the initial introduction into what we do, then it is kind of a matter of them getting our newsletter regularly or invitations to workshops that I'm hosting or like real world stuff that I'm doing, promotions of my book, openings of um, work workspaces. Um, and then I'll look very closely at my MailChimp opens. <laughs> if I can see that someone has opened my email 12 times, they're due for an email. Hey, they're interested in something I've got to say. Uh, and just last week, I, I won a new client. Um, and on one hand, you could say, oh, that client came out of the blue. Girl, no, she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, she came from years of my work. Yeah. Impressing another person that referred her directly to me. I love you it. You know? So, and I saw just in the, in the week before I got that cold new business that that person who was the referrer had opened my email like 12 times and she was on my to email contact like if I get a referral from people I send them a goddamn gift 
Amazing. Doesn't, yeah. Doesn't matter if the work comes through or not. That is immaterial. Do not be too transactional with your generosity. Yeah. Being too transactional with your generosity for referrals or when you go networking is like, it's, it's a poor use of your time in terms of networking. Um, and it's not where a sense of generosity and abundance like kind of come from. Um, I only recently um, went to a really good networking event actually by Vecchi. Uh, they're a Melbourne-based uh, chamber of commerce. And um, it was a really beautiful event. I was a guest. And when I go to in-world networking events, which I don't do as much anymore because I have a small child, post-pandemic, I guess no one goes to in-real, like IRL networking events quite as much as they used mm. to. Um, if I make two or three good connections, I'm happy to sit chatting to somebody who feels like a good fit for 20 minutes, 25 yeah. minutes. I do not need a handful of business cards. You know, I have digital for that. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to feel transactional and, you know, it's not pleasurable for me. Mm. So, um, and from that, you know, from that night, the prospects were actually really good. So there's one person who's getting warmer. So I follow her up every week. Like if I, if I can see that someone has opened an email 12 times or I have a really good conversation with them and they tell me a little bit about their business and I think, oh no, they're, they're definitely going to be up for using my service. Mm. I'll diarize to contact them every three weeks until they tell me either yes, or they are telling me that they need some time to get some more money or whatever it is they need to do. And then I contact them in six months. So I mm. use, um, my Outlook or Gmail or whatever. I use my calendar really heavily um, and I use MailChimp to power most of my prospecting. But it's a matter of following up in a in a courteous way mm. um, and having people see you on, having people see you on social media, um, slowly helping them understand more about what it is that you do and why it is that, that you are the solution for their client's problem or their own problem. Amazing. I think that that leads really well into my next question, which was more around like what kind of content are you sharing about yourself or are you sharing when you're managing clients' accounts that you feel really helps you to, I guess, position yourself as the go-to person? Like, is there anything in particular where you're like, if you want to be the go-to person, if you want people to know that you're the person to work with, these are the types of content pieces that you need to really think about? When it comes to sales, I'm really interested in the long game. I don't need immediate ROI. Um, I'm not particularly numerically driven, interestingly enough. Um, and I think that sometimes when we have expectations that are too high about an immediate kind of ROI, we can feel, you know, really discouraged in our business as if we're not hitting the mark or as if we're not able to make sales. So content that I find um, converts people over a long period of time, mm. and which is ideal for professional services, people who don't want to discount, like, I'm not into discount codes. I'm into the right person purchasing at the right time for the right price. Um, so uh, on a weekly basis, I look at the contributions I'm making to the community around me. So in the first iteration, let's say on the social media, I will create content that isn't explicitly sales, but it will be educating people about what we do, but what we feel like as an agency. Now that content is invariably beautiful um, and it doesn't just present me as the character I put focus on also featuring my team because um, having a charismatic leader which I am is important in a business but clients need to know that they feel 
like there's a suite of people that are helping them and that, um, you know, most people will expect that I'm not the one working on their material. Mm. Um, and that's very helpful because I'm not. Um, I'm the one who's designing strategy around it, but it doesn't mean that I'm their day-to-day. Mm. Someone who is like way better than I am at that stuff works for me and does that on the day-to-day. Um, uh, so creating content that I know will make prospects feel safe, feel confident and feel entertained. So we talk about uh, selling content and we also talk about discovery content and discovery content is stuff that we know will entertain an audience that doesn't have anything to do with selling really. Mm. So for example, my colleague Catherine's designed a beautiful suite of Pride Month uh, content for Ruby Assembly in June. And it looks at like all our favorite LGBTQI plus content across the team. Um, and that that material is going extremely well. It's got nothing to do with sales. It's got everything to do with culture and aesthetic. So that material I find does very well. A mix of ugly real and aesthetically gorgeous does well too. So if somebody ugly <laughs> real. Yeah. So ugly real is like um when I'm just, you know, talking to camera and it's really unfiltered, that allows people to see that I am a real person. And it gets a sense of like movement and being off the cuff and being approachable and being real. Um, if all we have as a brand is ugly and real, it looks illegitimate. And on the other side, if all we have is like a an aesthetic type of brand that feels totally plastic and not capable of faults, then that also doesn't feel very real. Mm. It's that space in between that is effective. But then beyond that contribution, I look at other ways I can make people feel a part of my business, even if they're not a purchaser. So that's where a podcast comes in, for example. I don't need to produce a ton of it, but what I do need to produce should be interesting and, again, speaking to the right audience, but doesn't have to be everybody. Mm. Um, other things that make people feel um, included in Ruby Assembly, um, I run a women's networking organisation called Serious Women's Business Northside. Over the past, I don't know, seven or eight years, we've accrued over 600 members, um, and that's a space that I curate and that I offer for other people to to learn and grow in. These are all small things, but the cumulative wave effect is a tsunami of presence. Mm. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's something that's really cumulative. Um, and I'd say the best example of a kind of a, a prospecting methodology that I love, and I love for a couple of reasons. One is because it has this intangible aspect that make people go, why do you bother doing that? So I do paste up campaigns, you know, on the side of hoardings like in the city where you know Phil Collins could be coming to town or Beyonce the big rock posters mm. I do those for Ruby Assembly wow yeah so they're not particularly they're fairly cost effective and I do one of those campaigns each year um and uh do at the initially did I worry that people would, would like draw dicks on my face yeah <laughs> but but I never saw any pictures of myself with a dick on my face. But what I did see were photos of people who supported me and love my yeah. brand and love what I do and love how that capacity to present myself is a massive vote of confidence in self. And I think that if people get that that's what we do for them, work done. I don't need an ROI on that. Like that's real and not many people do it. That That is some big old kahunas. And I got it. And clearly I have them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, you make me laugh. That's hilarious. That's not even something that I would think of. It's so guerrilla marketing. It like almost takes me back to my recruitment days when we were like, what guerrilla marketing campaigns could we potentially do in the city? Um, You know, and so what made you decide to, I guess, 
put that into the mix? Because nobody else was doing it. Okay. It was cost effective. When you say cost effective, like what sort of range? Uh, under 1600 Okay. And for like a month or? No, it's only for, it depends on the survey that you use, like yeah. the, the business, but it's typically like two weeks and across a part of Melbourne that you want them to be in. I think oh, that's very good value. Um, it's also utterly delightful to see your brand in the public space. It's delightful. Even if I just did it for me, it's delightful. I bloody love it. That's so good. Oh my gosh. So I just want to tap into this for a second because I feel like, you know, people are very like, this is where I market. This is what I do. Like, you know, we're on all of the digital platforms where, you know, we're sending emails, et cetera. I'd love to just touch on creative ways to connect with your audience. Is there anything else that you've done either for yourself or for other clients that is a little bit like out of the box. Yeah. So um, I do Client Love Day once a year. And Client Love Day is like, I mean, it is what it sounds like on the box. It's a gift that clients receive that they're not expecting and it just arrives sometime in the year. So um, I would do things like, I think I did one that was like cozy winter where I went and I got like, I did bought 20 or 25 of everything. Um, so it was a big, um, it was a big gift bag. And inside mm-hmm. it was like a warm blanket. Um, there was tea, there was a mug, there was a book, there was like a face mask. There was, um, I don't know, there were all the accoutrement that you'd want for a, like a cozy night in. And it was completely, uh, they're not really, it's not a branding exercise. It's a generosity exercise. Yeah. And it's about like feeling like somebody um, somebody cares cares about you and we, they, we do care about a client. So mm-hmm. we want them to feel that way. Um, other things I've done in the past, I haven't done this very recently. But when I first began for Christmas presents, I would buy my clients T-shirts. That's very personal. Um, and there'd be like T-shirts that you'd get from um, oh, the like uh, threadless, like T-shirts that have like interesting pop culture references. So it's a way of clients like... Gifting as a business, generosity is what you want to convey. Mm. Tailoring is what you want to convey if you can. Um, But it's okay if it's kind of about your impression of the client as well. Like with new business or referrals, I'll send people books that I like. Of course, I like my own book, but I also send send other books as well, Um, you know, because it means that I've cared enough to listen. Yeah. And it's that fine attention to detail that wins you clients for a long time. My average client, 10 years, eight years. That's amazing. It's really long business because I really, really care and respect their business. Yeah. You know, and, and um, you know, even when we have a client wrapping up, for example, the client didn't need a full month worth of um, the content. They needed two weeks, but our, our terms are 30 days. Um, and he's like, oh, don't worry about the last two weeks. Just wrap it up. It's cool. We deliver that content regardless. Mm. That's what they've paid for. That's our, That was our promise, you know, nine years ago, and that's indeed what we're going to give you. Uh, and that's a sense of pride in what we do at Ruby Assembly. Um, but it's just it's just good business, I think. Yeah. I think that people can get really, really romanced by this idea that everything is digital. Um, and whilst we can enjoy tremendous reach and power in the digital space, you need to be creating things in the space that are genuinely useful. Mm. Don't be giving me some chat GPT like 
um, generic advice on, you know, the best ways to move home. Mm. It can begin as a chat GPT prompt, but it must be more than that if you're going to want to show that you're worth the money that you're charging. Yeah, That's why, for example, we're not particularly worried about things like chat GPT. They're just ways of beginning documents. They're certainly not ways of ending them. It's thinking beyond what you might have been sold as a package of like, you know, launching your business in four months from a, you know, from a, from a coach who teaches coaching, for example, it's not, it's not that that is templating. And whilst it can give the facade that you're a legitimate business, if you scratch a little, you can see who is um, legitimately offering something of depth um, that has a longevity of relationship. Like what we all want as business owners is that repeat business. We don't want people who use us once for a ton of money and never come back. That's not good business. Costs too much to win a client. You want people who spend a good amount of money with you like clockwork. Yeah. That's, that's the gold. Yeah. No, I love that. And I feel like we've kind of been through the spectrum of, you know, from the very beginning of finding the client, nurturing the relationship, surprising and delighting for longevity. Like I love that, that journey. And I love all of the left feel out of the box ideas as well. (laughs) That's so good. And I would really encourage, yeah, my listeners to really think about, you know, what is it that you're doing that is a little different? What is it that you're doing to surprise and delight your clients, you know, that they may not know about? And what else could you do outside of maybe the digital space too, that could really build that connection as well. So I absolutely love everything that you shared. Thank you so much. I'd love to just wrap things up and talk about the hundred days of brave. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the book. Is there a, is there a party that I can come to? Like (laughs) what's happening? So a hundred days of brave uh, is a book that I um, began writing probably in about 2017. And the title of it came to me in a dream. You know how so many of our best ideas, they're like this giant porridge of all these inputs. And then at some point your brain finishes processing and downloading and it comes out with a fully formed idea. That's what 100 Days of Brave was for me. I wanted to be able to write something that was a genuinely helpful, uh, accessible roadmap to building a business safely because I've mentored and worked with many people over the last, I don't know, 14 years who might have a good concept but they may be frightened or disinterested in compliance. Ba-bow, that's not going to work. They might not have tested their concept at all to see whether or not it's actually appealing. Again, that's one way towards wasting a whole lot of money. Um, I wanted to write a book that was democratising because business is for everybody. We just all do different ways. We all do business differently. Mm. Um, And that is successfully what 100 Days of Brave has done. We have um, all the accoutrements of any good brand. So I have a a beautiful website. Please go check it out. It is unbelievably gorgeous. Um, We have a playbook, which accompanies the book, which helps you get more out of your three trimesters of Brave Action. Um, There's a playlist. There's a Facebook group. And next year I'm doing a two-day festival event um, in the city, which will be live lessons from 100 Days of Brave. Um, which will be a, a hell of a lot of fun. Uh-huh. However, that is a 2024, that's a 2024 goal. This year I'm going to be opening another co-working space. So that's what's on the cards for then. But um, 100 Days of Brave wasn't written for a Ruby Assembly client, for example. They're people who, uh, you know, they already have the wherewithal to pay for outsourcing. This is a dedication to people finding a way to live life on their own terms because, you know, we're all a multitude of things. We're 
daughters, we're friends, we may be mothers, we might be carers for the elderly or the young. And the traditional way of um, of making money, just that nine to five just doesn't really serve many of us anymore. Mm. And for me, I found that business has allowed me to live life in full colour at loud volume because people engage with me. They want me as I am. And if we can live life as we're meant to be, that's got to be a good thing. And so that's why I wrote 100 Days of Brave because I think that women can find freedom in business. Oh, let's finish on that. Woo! Live life in full colour. Yeah. <laughs> yes to that. That's yeah. so great. I absolutely love this chat. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, we'll obviously to... have all of your links everywhere. For sure. But for my audiences who I always say are on the dog walk or in the car, where can they find you? What's the best so, place? Best place is uh, on Instagram, Ruby Assembly. If you're curious about uh, our co-working spaces in Melbourne's North, it's at The Good Axe. And my podcast is Sell Less, Mean More on Spotify and Apple. So those are probably all the good places to find me. But um, I'm everywhere. Don't worry. <laughs> and once you get into that vortex look out i love it that's so great we will have all the links on the show notes to that but i really appreciate you sharing all of this i know that this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship i I think so it's a vibe it's a vibe (laughs) we love living out loud full color so good Sue, thank you so much for um for allowing me to uh speak a little on my experience to your audience. I hope that um, uh, we've both been able to offer some value to them. Um, and yeah, I look forward to more Susan Yelanthi magic in the future. <laughs> I am here for it. Thank you so much, Yelanthi. <laughs> my pleasure. Bye, Sus. Bye. How good, how good, how good. How good was that? I love that conversation. There was so much gold in there for you. Like for you to really sit down and work out what your lead nurturing strategy is. Like how are clients finding you? What are you doing with them when they come to you? What things are you not doing right now that you could maybe shift and change? What is something that you could do that is a bit more creative? Like so much gold. So if you got a lot out of that episode, I would love you to share it, share it on your socials, share it everywhere, you know, say what it is that you're either going to do or what did you get out of this episode and make sure that you tag Yulanthi at Ruby Assembly, tag me, we will share it. But this is a conversation we're having. Like if you're here on the podcast, we are having this conversation more. Are you up for that? We're going to make 2023, 2024 for those who are in Australia, we're, you know, new financial year now, but we're going to make this the best sales year that we've had yeah where we're putting great systems in place we are being active like focused intentional marketers and we are selling in a way that converts our dream clients are you with me are you with me give me a yes wherever you are whether you're in the car you're walking but like yes Suze, yes let's do this i'm gonna make this happen so i'm excited to talk more about this but listen have an amazing rest of your day and i will see you next week